Welcome to the Truth Be Known podcast, bringing you the objective truth boldly, candidly, and without apology. Welcome to this week's episode. Well, welcome back to another episode of the Truth Be Known podcast. I'm Nathaniel Jolly. And I am Eki Tepsapornshai. Well, brother, it's good to see you. I have really uh, loved doing these episodes uh, on the attributes of God. I've been really encouraged by that. Well, likewise, I, I've actually been teaching through Fundamentals of the Faith with my church, and we actually are just getting into Lesson 3. And it's so rewarding to be able to go through this and then see the looks on their faces just as they're really meditating upon what each verse means as it relates to God's attributes. So this is a very rich topic, and I believe one that is much overlooked within the church, and one that has the benefit of being able to protect people from wrong doctrine, because the more you know about God, the more you can spot when something is consistent with his character or not. Yeah, absolutely, and I'm telling you, brother, there isn't, I mean, almost now a day that goes by where I pull up social media of some on some platform, and I think, if only they knew the attributes of God, <laughs> yeah. this would not be as big of an issue as it is right now. And um, I've noticed your tweets. Your tweets have been uh, focused on the attributes of God recently. Yeah, I'm trying to double dip. Um, so <laughs> yeah, that that and tweets from the book of Jude, because that's what we're preaching through right now. Um, yeah, there you go. But yeah, absolutely. And, and it's interesting, you know, for a lot of our listeners that have been listening for a while, we kind of started out purely as an apologetic dealing with charismatic issues, and we'll still deal with some of those. Uh, it's kind of morphed into, uh, I, I think, really dealing with issues that are uh, just kind of across the board, good things for the body of Christ to hear. And so I, I've been really excited about that. Um, and, and I think that'll continue. But it's interesting because the attributes of God is something that is hugely missing in the wide charismatic movement. Um, you don't hear a lot of teaching. In fact, I mean, I, I don't know how long was I in the movement, 10, 12 years or something like that. I never, ever once heard uh, a teaching, uh, a sermon from a passage in scripture, anything on any of the attributes of God other than love. And even that right. was eisegetical, right? It was not what scripture says, but I've never heard in the charismatic movement, uh, anything about the attributes of God. And so um, these would be really good to share if folks had family or friends who were caught up in that movement. Um, there's just something about learning about God's holiness, God's immutability, God's righteousness and justice, that if you're caught up in movements, not just in the charismatic movement, but if you're caught up in movements that just have a lot of really bad doctrine, when you start learning this, you know, the Holy Spirit just opens eyes and you think, wow, you know, and, and so yeah, what's your thoughts on that, brother? Yeah, you know, it's funny you bring up the Pentecostals and uh, how this really this podcast started off as an apologetic to them. You remember the Strange Fire Conference. I, I think that was back in 2014 or 2015, one of those two years. And I took a class uh, shortly thereafter. Um, on the exegesis of 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, which obviously centers a lot on the, the gifts. 
And we, part of our assignment is that we had to pick up a book by someone who was charismatic arguing for their position. And I picked up a, a book that was kind of a, it was a low key response to strange fire called Holy Fire. And, uh, and it was written by, I think, R.T. Kendall. R.T. Kendall is the man who replaced uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, um, but he is very, very different from Martin Lloyd-Jones. And I remember reading this book and one of the attributes that he talked about, and he, he didn't go deep into the attributes, but he quoted one of the scriptures that, um, that we can quote when we talk about the unchangeableness of Jesus Christ specifically. But then as I looked at the quote, he totally took it out of, he ripped it out of context and, and used it to try to argue how um, spiritual gifts have always been there and they're always meant to be there in terms of those supernatural ecstatic mm. uh, spiritual gifts. So I agree with you, even, even amidst their, um, their, their grouping with those whom they would consider to be more biblically rooted, um, there is a lot of misapplication and misunderstanding. And I think the attributes of God would help correct a lot of that. But as you mentioned, whenever people emphasize love, what I tend to assume, and I think is right, at least every time I've seen it, when there's an overemphasis upon love, what they're doing is they're really compromising with the worldly view of who God should be in their eyes, rather than who God reveals himself to be. And so with the charismatic group really emphasizing love, I think that's going to be the same tendency. They're going to make the same kind of errors. And it always comes back to the only way you can correct that is to come back to scripture. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think you'll find that with all of uh, these attributes, and I, I picked love specifically because not only um, is it prominent in the charismatic church, which, by the way, um, the the charismatic movement is actually the largest growing section of, quote unquote, Christianity, not just in the U.S., but in the world. So it's not a fringe uh, side movement. It's incredibly large. Uh, which is why I bring that up. But so you don't you you don't just get the distortion of love in that group of people, but it's all over our current society now, right? Everyone speaks of love, and it, it, you know it's void of what Scripture says. And so, as we continue to go through these attributes, people should know um, we're defining attributes based on God's word and what God's how God defines these things. Uh, we we don't care what the world says; we care what the word says. And, and you can't go wrong there because that's absolute truth. So, brother, define immutability for us. It is a big word that a lot of guys may yeah. have not heard before. Yeah, you know, when we get into the attributes, we get into a lot of words that we don't use on an everyday basis. And so immutability is simply the fact that God never changes. And, uh, of course, someone's going to say, well, why don't you just say he doesn't change? <laughs> well, we just said, we said he's immutable. And I often tell um, others that it's still good for you to learn these terms because you're going to pick up theology books, you're going to pick up articles and read books, and they're going to refer to immutability. And you need to understand what that means. But it's the fact that God never changes. And I would say that this is one of those attributes that has a clear connection in terms of how it harmonizes with every single other attribute of God. So this is one that is often overlooked, but when properly understood, there is some great uh, there's some great comfort and some great reasons to praise the Lord our God. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when when we went through this attribute uh, in in our church, man, I I think by the time we got to the end of it, it brought so much comfort and 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 a peace that we really should have because ultimately, um, just like several of the other attributes, 
because God's not changing, it means there there's an absolute trust that can be given towards his promises to us, towards what he says that he'll do and he has done. Uh, but because he's not like us, he doesn't change, right? Yeah, and, and when we think about faithfulness, and we are thankful that God is faithful, and we're thankful that um, that also we're called to have faith in him and, and trust in his faithfulness, but his faithfulness is very much rooted in the fact that he's unchanging. When he makes a promise, he doesn't go back on it. You know, when he says he's going to give us eternal life, he's not suddenly going to change his mind later. So the unchangeableness of God is something that we can take comfort in because men, you know, men can give us promises. And depending upon who it is, we may have a varying, varying levels of confidence um, in that person. Um, but you can never be absolutely sure. It's kind of like, you know, when I think about, um, I, I think I've heard John MacArthur say that he hesitates to, um, to, to give compliments to people who are still alive because you just don't know what's going to happen. And especially the last couple of years, we've seen teachers that we thought were faithful and, you know, biblically, biblically based um, yeah. kind of go off, off, off the path onto other strange teachings and, and doctrines. Um, but the, you know, what John would often say is that he, or what I've heard about John is that he prefers to quote people who have already died because then you know their character. But with God, um, we have the comfort of knowing that he will never change. He will never go back. He will never become unfaithful. He is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. And a lot of that is on the basis that what he says, he keeps, and what he and he keeps it because he is unchanging. Yeah, absolutely, brother. I mean, that's really good points. Um, and, you know, it doesn't do any of us who are preachers uh, to get too many accolades anyway. It just, you know, <laughs> just, yeah. just brings temptation to sin. So, uh, I, don't, I don't think we have to worry about too much of that on, on the Twitterverse these days. But brother, let's get into some scripture. Um, I, I want to go straight to Numbers 23, 19. It says this, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? God does not repent, right? Which means he does not change his mind. What a great verse to talk about the immutability of God. Yeah, absolutely. That, that is a wonderful verse. And, and what's interesting, we know that Numbers, this is the fourth book of the Mosaic books. It comes right after Leviticus, which comes right after Exodus. And some people, people who are naysayers will say, wait a second, didn't Moses intercede on behalf of Israel twice in the book of Exodus? And it says that God repented. So how can he say here that he is not like a man who repents? And usually my response to that is that here, here's the amazing thing about God. In those cases, he was threatening judgment. He was threatening to destroy or to bring, uh, bring uh, judgment upon Israel. Moses interceded and he relents from that judgment. When God repents or relents, it's from judgment that we deserve. Um, but when he makes a promise to us of, of blessings, when he makes a promise of, as it relates to the covenants, he never repents of that. So it's actually to our benefit that he does repent the way he does in terms of judgment. And we know that even today, the judgment of God is upon anyone who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ. But as long as a person's alive, they have the opportunity to repent themselves. And if they repent, then judgment's not going to come upon them. Now, this is not to say that God had a certain decision and then he changed his mind because we know that God knows all things. He already knew exactly how all these events would turn out including the incident following the golden calf incident where he initially said he would destroy all of the nation. And the way I portray that is he said that in order to show just the intercessory heart that Moses had. 
uh, for his fellow Israelites to intercede, and then God was able to then respond to that. But yeah, um, yeah this is this is a great verse, and when it comes to the blessings of God towards his children, when it comes to his covenants, um, we can bank on this, and, and this has held up true throughout all of the history of redemption, and it will continue to hold up all the way to the end. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point that you made there, brother, because a lot of people, and I, I knew we'd get there eventually, will go to those verses and say, well, it says he repented. And, you know, we need to understand that when the Bible uses language like that, it's for our sake, um, right? We understand that God is dealing with his people um, in, in a way that they can understand him. And so, yeah, God never changed his mind. He always knew that he was not going to move forward with that. So, you know, he did that for the benefit of Moses and for the benefit of his people uh, so that they could see demonstrated, right, um, his loving kindness and his graciousness towards them. Um, and, and so we just, we just understand it that way, and, and anthropomorphism, as it were, uh, another fun word to say, which just simply yeah. means we're attributing human qualities or characteristics to something that doesn't have them naturally. So, yeah, I, I think that's that's a really good point too, because when we think about God the Father, um, John four twenty four reveals to us that God is spirit. So He is not man in terms of He's got a physical body and head and arms and hands, though He's often portrayed that way. That is really that anthropomorphic. Language in order for us to better understand, or or sometimes we refer to as the language of accommodation. Yeah, you know, so that he he kind of speaks down to our level, so that we can um, be best understand what it is uh, that that he's doing. So I think that that is a good point as well. Yeah, absolutely. And it, you know, I just think about it, you've we we talk about application and implications, and I think most of us prefer impl implication stuff. But I mean, really and truly, if you grasp immutability. I mean, you can wake up day to day and you consider, you know, passages that speak of his mercies being renewed. And I mean, that's a promise of God, right? And you think, wow, it, it's not possible for that to never be true. Um, it, it's not possible that we can lose our walk with Christ because he has yeah. promised to keep us, right? Um, and, and you think about these wonderful doctrines of election and things like that. And how God keeps us, how we're, I, I mean, in fact, it's uh, in, in, in the verse we're going to cover this coming week in Jude, uh, the first couple verses of Jude, it, it talks about that, um, how we're, we're the called, right, how we're beloved, and then how we're kept. Man, you understand the immutability of God, and, and you just walk away from that thinking, okay, I, I don't deserve it, but God's promised to keep me. And what a, what a beautiful thing. And it combats so much of what we see today, especially with all of this perpetual victimhood and, and all of this constantly not being good enough. Um, you know, well, the truth is you, you aren't good enough. You'll never be good enough. That's why we needed a savior. But then we can trust in his work because he doesn't change his mind on those things, right? Yeah, and, and that's a good point. And, and just to clarify for anyone that might misunderstand, when you say victimhood, you're referring to that attitude. We're not saying that Absolutely. people can't be victims. I mean, people get victimized all the time. You can be a victim of a crime. You can be a victim of violence. Uh, women can be victimized by, by men who are abusing their power. Um, so there, there's true victims that exist everywhere. But we understand that those who are in Christ, we understand that ultimately we are all victors, no matter what it is that we go through in this life. 
and people that really have their trust in God. It's amazing when they hit very difficult circumstances and even circumstances where they are victimized um, by someone else, they're taken advantage by someone else. When they really trust in God, they don't show the attitude of a victim. They show the attitude of one who is in God, who knows that, uh, that they will have their ultimate victory. And as to your point, we can rest in that because God is unchanging. And I think, you know, you brought up the fact that, you know, God is gracious and, and merciful. And when we think about how God wanted to wipe out Israel after the golden calf incident, Moses intercedes. And then shortly thereafter, what does he do? He says, Moses has a request, show me your glory. And in Exodus 34, that's when the Lord passes in front of him and he reveals himself to Moses as being, um, being gracious and compassionate uh, with loving kindness, keeping loving kindness for thousands and, and all that. So even in that situation where God already knew what he was going to do, he uses that instance, he uses that, that act of mercy and compassion, which by the way, he says, I will be gracious upon who I will be gracious. I'll be compassionate upon who I'm compassionate. And he uses that in order to really launch into that vision of glory that he brings before Moses, where he reveals those attributes before him. And, and one more thing, and you, you brought up a great point here too. We have been, uh, think about this, Ephesians 1, 4 says, we were chosen before the foundation of the world. Mm-hmm. And that, that's amazing. The foundation of the world brings us back to creation, but saying that even before creation, and I'm speaking in manly terms because we know God kind of exists out of, outside of time, but even before the creation account, God elected us. And yet, when we look at Genesis, we see Genesis 6 and all the sin that had ravaged all of mankind. And what does it say? It says, God, um, he, um, he, he, what was the word? He, he um, you know what I'm talking about. He, uh, he, he uh, what's the word? Let me let me look this up real quick. Yeah, I was going to try to pull it up real quick. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's in Genesis 6. And I say this all the time, and it's one of those things. Okay, so Genesis 6, uh, verse 6, says that the Lord was sorry, or he was grieved, um, almost like he regretted. Some translations might even say regret. So it's almost the same idea. It's like, well, it looks like the Lord is kind of changing his mind. No, well, realize that he has already chosen you before the foundation of the world, and he chose you through the covenants he knew he would make, the Abrahamic covenant um, and uh, the new covenant, the Davidic covenant and, and all that. So he already knew the covenants he was going to lay out. But in this case, you know, what we see is that he creates mankind. Their sin is great. He, he wipes them out. He gives the Noahic promise, though, gives the Noahic promise that he's not going to wipe them out by water again. And the idea is that now he's going to reveal what his plan for redemption is. Mm. So he already knew all along what his plan of redemption is. He knew that before the foundation of the world. So when we look at passages like this, we got to realize this is not an event that took God by surprise. This is just him expressing grief over, over the sin that is evident in mankind. Yeah, absolutely, brother. You know, let me just throw a few other passages out there so people see that, I mean, again and again, you can go all the way through the scriptures from the beginning to the end, from Genesis to Revelation, and constantly find references to God's immutability, to, to the fact that he doesn't change, right? Let me just throw a few more out there. First uh, Timothy 1.17, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And it just gives a sense of God's majesty that he existed before all of time. And so we put those things together. Uh, Hebrews 1.11 says, they will perish, but you remain. 
and they will all become like an old garment and like a mantle, you will roll them up like a garment. They will also be changed, but you are the same and your years will not come to an end. Uh, we get to talk about giftings and callings and things like that. Romans 11 for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. And that just is uh, a mirror of God's immutability. And it just time and time and time again, uh, in James, you find it, you can go back to Genesis. There are lots of passages in Genesis constantly going back to the fact that God is unchanging. Um, I mean, how many times does is the promise to Abraham's seed, his descendants referenced all throughout yeah. the New Testament, right? And constantly right. He's saying, this is what I said. And so it's unchangeable. Here's what it is. And we live in the promises of God from time past. Uh, in, in fact, from eternity past, right? Uh, from before the foundations of the earth, um, God called us right? He knew us, if we use the language in Jeremiah there. And, and what an incredible thought. Um, yes, yes. And, and you, you brought up the, you know, the Abrahamic covenant. Um, and I often tell people, whenever you see the names brought up, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and, and those three names are brought up together quite often. Every time those names are brought up, God will say, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is always a reminder of the Abrahamic promise that he gave to those three specifically. And we remember how the Abrahamic covenant starts in Genesis 12 uh, verses one through three, but in particular in verse three, God tells Abraham that through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So even though verse two talked about the nation of Israel, how you're going to be a great nation, he goes on to say that through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And how does that happen? Well, that doesn't get fulfilled until Jesus Christ ascends up into heaven. As he tells his disciples, the Great Commission was that you're to go and make disciples of all the nations. And then in Acts chapter 1, he tells them that you're to be my witnesses, um, starting in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, and to the rest of the world. That's when it absolutely gets fulfilled. But we think about all the way back to the promises made to Abraham, and God was faithful to that all the way up even until now, which is the reason why we evangelize, the reason why we send out missionaries. The reason why we share the gospel with people is because now the promises of God as rooted in the Abrahamic promise from the very beginning is now available to everyone as we bring the gospel to everyone who needs to be saved. Yeah. And okay. So brother, let me throw this one at you because this is another uh, attempt, uh, another jab at God's immutability that often comes up um, or, or maybe just genuine question from folks. They say, well, I mean, clearly there was a change. We, we have an old Testament and now we have a New Testament, and God doesn't even, I mean, used to have to kill an animal, right, for your sin, yeah. and now we don't have to do that. So how, how is that not God changing? I mean, it's clear, right, right. there for everyone to see. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, we have the Old Covenant, the New Covenant, and we don't function the same way. We don't have to sacrifice animals. Um, for instance, the penalty for certain sins in the Old Testament, many of them were, was death, and, and now the worst thing that happens is excommunication from the church, Right. Um, so that's a good question for a lot of people. I think that's uh, probably a, a legitimate question. Um, but what we would say is that between the old covenant and the new covenant, at any point in history, God's character never changed. The, the, way he, the way he operated with his people and the requirements given to the people it definitely changed from the old covenant to the new covenant. We, we get that, but that doesn't mean that God himself changed. And just to add on top of that, the other challenge I typically get is like, wait a second, Jesus Christ was not always a man. Um, he, he was made incarnate, 
um, at some point in history, but he wasn't always human flesh. So how can you say that Jesus Christ is always the same? Well, again, we're not talking about the physical form that he took up. We're talking about the character. We're talking about the character and attributes of God. And this is part of the problem with people that will point to the Old Testament and say that the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath, whereas the God of the New Testament is a God of love and grace. Well, that's not true. You, you see a lot of God's grace because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, his son. But wait until Jesus Christ comes back. You're not going to say that this is just a God of grace and not a God of wrath, because you're going to see a lot of wrath when Jesus Christ returns, and you're going to see a lot of wrath at the great final judgment, and especially as uh, those who are not written in the book of life are thrown into the lake of fire. So God is the same in all periods of time, no matter what covenant is in place, no matter how the people are expected to behave. And it's by God's grace now we're on this side of the cross that we don't have to live up to the demands of the law, but the law was there in order to show us how much we needed Jesus Christ. Yeah, absolutely. Good points, brother. And, you know, uh, I'll just pick out a few instances that show that in Scripture. The reality is, um, you know, God is a God of wrath, and God is a God of love, and those characters haven't changed. So we see people paying the penalty for their sins in the Old, in, in the old Testament under the Old Covenant. But then we've talked about it before. Look at Ananias and Sapphira. It's a, a single instance where we see the wrath of God demonstrated on sin. Well, that's yes. in both covenants, right? Um, yeah, lot. I mean, you made a really good point. Lots of people just leave out the book of Revelation because when Christ comes back, there's some pretty strong language um, about God's wrath. He comes to bring the sword and not peace, and we see those verses. And so he hasn't changed. And by the way, um, God has never changed what he's required to cover sin. He has always required a sacrifice, and he still requires it today. The only difference Amen. is Christ was the perfect and once for all sacrifice, whereas in the old covenant, covenant animals had to be sacrificed over and over. So even that hasn't changed, right? It's just that Christ was the final and perfect sacrifice. Um, and so we think about those things, you think, oh, okay, well, yeah, it, it really is all the same. It's better, um, but it's the same requirement. You know, innocent blood has had to be shed for mine and your salvation. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's a wonderful point. And when we think about the cross and Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross at Calvary, it is both the greatest act of justice and injustice, right? It's the greatest act of injustice because an innocent man had to go to the cross to pay that penalty. And not just an innocent man, but a perfectly righteous man who is worthy of all exaltation, right? So great injustice in that sense. But the greatest act of justice, because for all those who have put their faith into Jesus Christ, your sins have been paid for. You know, the, the wrath has been bore. And, and we think about Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10, which says that God was pleased to crush his son. And some people recoil at that kind of language because they portray it like it's some sort of divine child abuse. Well, no, the reason why God was pleased is not because he likes to punish his son. The reason why he was pleased is because he has chosen us before the foundation of the world. He has already he has already picked out who he was going to he, he was going to going to save through this uh, this sacrifice. And Jesus Christ, being humbled and being obedient all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross, God was able to express His love, grace, and mercy to us by that sacrifice on the cross. And that's why He was pleased to crush the Son. That that would be the way that He would be able to bring many to salvation. 
And so, yeah, when we think about wrath and, and grace and, and all that great point, the sacrifices, it's still a sacrifice, but now we are beneficiaries of the most perfect sacrifice, the once for all kind of sacrifice. And I just pulled up Jonah chapter four, because even though a lot of us think that the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath, Jonah had a very different idea, right? He was sent into Nineveh and uh, he didn't want to go there. He had to be swallowed up by a whale, spit out. He goes there and says, 40 days and you will fall. They repent. And then Jonah is upset in chapter four. And when God, <laughs> the explanation he gives to God why, why he was upset, verse two, chapter four, verse two, he says, he prayed to the Lord and said, please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning mm. calamity. So we might think he's a God of wrath, but Jonah has a very different picture. He saw him as a very gracious and compassionate God, so much that he ran away because he didn't want the Ninevites to be saved. And so, yeah, God is always been the same. He's always been gracious. He's always been compassionate. He's also also always been righteous and just. And we talked about that. Was that last week? We talked about his righteousness yeah. and justice. Yeah. <clears throat> He's always been righteous. He's always been just. And they all harmonize together. You've mentioned this a couple of times. We can't just take one of the attributes and single it out at the expense of all the others. They all work together. So so these attributes, we the more we study the scriptures, the more we see that they're there all throughout. Yeah. And separating the attributes, I mean, especially even just this week, I think of all the kerfuffle that's come up over stuff. And, and really, it's centered around what God's greatest attribute is or is not. I mean, the reality is he, all of his attributes exist perfectly in perfect unity. You can't separate one from another. Um, you, you just, yeah, you just can't do that. If you take away God's love, then you're taking away the essence of who God is. If you take away his holiness, you're taking away the essence of who he is. Um, and, and so we can speak in terms of, you know, God's sovereignty, kind of everything else is under that umbrella or God's holiness, meaning he's totally separate from us. But the reality is you, you can't just pick one and say, well, this one, you know, is God's primary attribute. Um, it, we just can't really separate them that way. And uh, I mean, to your point about God's love and kindness, I mean, it's all through the Old Testament. I mean, look, let's just go back to the very beginning, right? I mean, we don't even get out of, out of Genesis before God has to relent. Well, he didn't relent. We're just using that, you know, that word again. I mean, here, here we are, you know, these creatures who were made from the dust of the earth, who yeah. decide to defy the living God, whom walked with them in the garden, who said, the day you do this, you'll die. And they didn't die. Yep, I mean, right, right away, we see God's long suffering, God's loving kindness in the very beginning. Um, so if one walks away from the Old Testament with the idea of it was an angry, wrathful God, I just wonder, did they ever start at the beginning of the book? Uh, because right. we see as grace demonstrated right there. Yeah, and even the Noahic uh, covenant, I often point this out. When God established the Noahic covenant uh, with, uh, with Noah and his family, he, he said he promised that he is not going to flood the world um, anymore. And, and this, a lot of people will portray this as a, 
you know, kind of a wink, wink, but he didn't say anything about fire, right? Um, but that, that, that wasn't the point of that promise. The, the point of that promise is the whole reason why he flooded the earth to begin with was because of the sinfulness of man. The fact that he made a promise that he wouldn't flood the earth again, it shows that the, he knows, he understands, God knows the problem of sin has not been addressed, but he promises he's not going to respond in the same way. So how is he going to respond? Well, that's where we get into then the Abrahamic covenant, his, his real plan for redemption and, and the promises that he would make to God's people. And by the way, as we're going through this, you, you may notice those of you who are listening, we keep talking about all these other attributes because when it comes to God's immutability, they connect to all of his other attributes. And if he is a certain way in one part of history, then he is that way in all parts of history. And that's a real comfort because if he is not immutable, if he can actually change, then we cannot affirm that he's actually perfect um, because a perfect being never needs to change. Great point. And, and this is part of the problem with, uh, with process theology or open theism. You know, they compromise on God's sovereignty, but when you compromise on God's sovereignty, then you also have to compromise on God's omniscience. And now you got to com compromise on, on his omnipotence as well. You, you know, it starts to turn into this, this house of cards that you pull one card and they, they all fall apart. But when we talk about God's immutability, the beautiful thing is when we think about the harmonizing, it connects to all these other attributes that we are so dependent upon as well. Yeah, I, I mean, that is a great point. Because God is immutable, his love never changes. His holiness never changes. His sovereignty never changes. I mean, yeah, they're all so uh, interconnected. I, that's a great point, brother. Uh, I haven't thought of saying it that way, but it's true. Um, and I mean, again, if you want a modern day demonstration of the immutability of God, take the rainbow. I mean, okay, in our context, right? And and really, it's no longer just the Western context. It spread kind of throughout the world. the The rainbow flag now is associated with what? Because it's not God's yeah, promise. That's right. That's right. It's, it's the LGBTQ. It's with you know the wickedness of perverse, sinful depravity. Um, and yet God hasn't wiped us off the face of the earth. Uh, isn't it ironic, you know, that what God used as a promise has now been perverted and we just, it's just another picture of, of God's immutability. You know, he hasn't come in and said, okay, you've perverted my promise now. And so, uh, you know, I'm going to destroy you again. Um, but I, it's just a living modern day demonstration, I think of God's um, yeah, that, that, that is a very interesting connection. Uh, we think about God's uh, grace and mercy in, in providing that promise, the Noahic promise, and that mercy uh, had to be shown because of the great sinfulness of mankind. And now the symbol of that mercy is being used by those same people that who are today perverting um, what God's design for us is. Now, I, I think that's a very interesting connection and not, not all that uh, completely coincidental either. You know, I, a man in uh, his heart, Romans one eighteen, we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So we definitely um, seeing seeing that uh, seeing that happen. But um, if I may, I want to take us to Romans chapter nine. Um, this is a wonderful statement of God's unchangeableness because at Romans chapter eight, I mean, this has got to be one of the favorite chapters for any Christian, right? There now we know that there is no condemnation in Christ. And at the end of chapter eight, uh, Paul talks about just how secure we are in our salvation. Right. I mean, he he says in verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one that condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? 
will tribulation, distress, persecution, or famine, nakedness, or peril, or sword, just as, is, as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these, all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He ends on a high note at the end of chapter eight, really affirming to us who are in Christ that there is nothing that can take away the salvation that we've been granted. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. But the obvious question for, especially for a Jewish person who has witnessed uh, or at least understands Old Testament history and what has happened to Israel, they've got to be asking, okay, well, how is it that you can be so dogmatic that Christians will receive this gift when the Israelites are where they are right now, despite all the promises made to them. And I love how chapter nine, Paul addresses that head on. He goes right for that. He says, I am telling you the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. And he goes on to talk about his, his sorrow for the fellow Israelites and how they have been the blessed people of God. They are the keepers of the covenant and the temple and all these things. But then look at verse six, chapter nine, verse six, Paul says this, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Paul makes a very direct point that despite what you think may have happened, God's word has held up, that, that all of God's promises have held up exactly the way he has intended them. And he goes on to prove that with some, some deep theological arguments following that. But the whole point is this. God's word has been established, and it has happened exactly according to the way he said it would happen. And so I, I love that Paul does that. And it again, it points back to the unchangeableness of God, that even though the Israelites turned away from God, they rejected the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and that um, even to this day, there is a veil over their face. We know that this has been God's plan all along and has never changed. Um, he, he knew what exactly what he was doing, and we look forward to a time in which that veil will be lifted uh, for, for many of the Israelites. Um, but again, unchangeableness of God, and I just love it here in chapter 9 as Paul goes directly for the what would be the main argument against it and goes on to prove that, no, God's word has not failed at all. And the fact that it has not failed, that's dependent upon his immutability. Yeah, that's a really good point, brother. And I, I mean, I'll, I think of other passages in John where Jesus said, you know, I've never lost one that the Father's given me. Um, and and well, and if you think about these things and you just kind of maybe re reverse engineer them, like we mentioned earlier, I think you were talking about uh, the interconnectedness of the attributes. It, if any one of God's promises does in fact not come true or or does change. It, it means he's not omnipotent. It means he's not sovereign. And if you destroy omnipotence, if you destroy God's sovereignty, well, then what are we, who are we even worshiping? Right. Um, I, I, I don't want to worship someone who's just like me. Uh, I need a savior who's not like me. Um, right. And so oftentimes if we just reason through the consequence of what we believe in terms of God's attributes, we'll end up with the result that, tears down the Christian faith in its entirety. And, and so I, I, I like to do it. I like to sit people through that process and say, okay, well, 
if what you're saying is true principally, then what's the implication of that? And all in almost every case, when you get the attributes wrong, the implication is that you remove God um, from being God, right? And so then you can say, all right, well, clearly I've misunderstood something. And yeah, Paul, I mean, probably one of the strongest arguments in scripture, Paul deals with that just head on, like you said. Um, and yeah, I, I think, you know, for, for, for the folks who do really fight against these attributes, um, I mean, goodness, I want to say um, God is not like man. Why do you want to make God like man, right? We, we need an other than man as a savior. Um, this is why Christ came. Uh, to be, you know, fully God and fully man. If you take one of those elements away, which if you destroy the attributes, you take the God element away, right? Yeah. Um, but if he wasn't fully God and fully man and perfect in every way, then the substitution for our atonement is made null and vilified, right? Um, Amen. Yeah, and when we think about the gospel and our salvation, just how many of those attributes of God are we dependent upon, Right. We are dependent upon the fact that he knows all things. Um, if he didn't know all things, then how is it that we can be so sure that all of our sins have been paid for? He knew all of our sins even before they've been committed. Um, the, the fact that he is, um, he is all-powerful, that he is all-knowing, as I mentioned, he's sovereign, that he can protect us, um, that he has full authority and, and protection and can make sure that, that, uh, that our salvation is not taken away. You know, and, um, and all this, again, we're talking about all these different attributes, but then we are once again led back to the fact that we are completely dependent upon not only these attributes, but that these attributes never change, that these attributes will always um, be there. And uh, one of the verses you had cited this early, I mean, earlier, as we're in Romans um, 11, verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irre irrevocable. And I have seen in that book that I mentioned earlier, the um, Holy Fire book, he, he quoted that uh, verse and, um, and, and used gifts to refer to the spiritual gifts. Well, we're not even talking about the spiritual gifts in Romans 9, 10, and 11. It's talking about Israel, yeah. right? And, and the promises made to Israel. So the gifts are not <clears throat> spiritual gifts, but the gifts are really the promises made to Israel about what God would, would do for them. And uh, so we, we recognize that in our salvation and all that God has done for us, we are dependent upon so many of those attributes, even his justice and righteousness that it was fulfilled, um, on the cross that Jesus Christ was that, uh, that perfect uh, substitute. Um, the fact that God is eternal, if he's not eternal, then our salvation can't be eternal. You know, we, we can go through just one by one and just how dependent are we that not only those attributes, but that those attributes never change. Mm. Amen, brother. Well, you know, I think that's a perfect note to end on. Our God is an immutable God. So thank you guys for joining us. And until next time, let the truth be known. The Truth Be Known podcast is a theologically driven, gospel-centered program serving the body of Christ by bringing biblical truth to bear on issues facing the church today. Subscribe to the Truth Be Known podcast by using the podcast app on your Apple or Android device or listen online at strivingforeternity.org in the podcast section.